produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. Welcome to Kind World. I'm Andrea Aswahe. And I'm Yasmin Amr. We hear so many stories of the chaos at the southern border. Children being separated from their parents, people waiting months for a judge to hear their asylum cases, and dangerous, sometimes fatal, attempts to cross into the U.S. But within the heartbreak, we also found stories of humanity and kindness. And we at Kind World wanted to share just a few of them with you. So we traveled to Brownsville a city right on the edge of Texas, bordering Matamoros, Mexico. There, we met the volunteers who have become the lifeline for hundreds of asylum seekers. Fifty-year-old Brownsville native Mike Benavidez and a group of seven volunteers are at La Plaza bus station, dressed for the blistering summer heat, getting ready to cross the border into Matamoros, about half a mile away. They've got wagons loaded with food, water, and what they call dignity bags. They're called dignity bags because they're things that are very desperately needed. uh, Soaps, shampoos, some deodorant, uh, hygiene items. So we've got 500 here. A lot of the volunteers are first-timers, but Mike, he's a regular. He's one of a handful of locals who founded a network of volunteers called Team Brownsville last year. They started out by bringing food and water to dozens of asylum seekers waiting at the border. I'd wake up before work and I'd, I'd uh, load up a wagon with, with coffee and water and I'd load up another with tacos from Stripes and I'd cross over and, and spend a little time there. And then, uh, you know, I just, since that day, I just never stopped. <laughs> By December, Mike Benavidez was crossing the border into Matamoros twice a day, seven days a week, to bring meals to people with little or no access to food or clean water. He did this for seven months through heat and cold through physical exhaustion, and through high stress, personally and professionally. He was even paying for the food out of his own pocket. I, I threw my heart into this. You know, I, every penny I had, like, I maxed out every credit card. Not long after, dozens of asylum seekers turned into hundreds. It happened after the Trump administration implemented the so-called stay-in-Mexico policy in January. Before that, migrants who got to the border and claimed asylum could stay in the U.S. until their court hearing. Now they have to wait in Mexico. And if they're claiming asylum in the Rio Grande Valley, they're sent to wait in Matamoros. We were not prepared for that. I was here in July, and I went across one night. We fed our normal 110, 120. The next night, we did 220. Now we're doing almost 600. That's 72-year-old Ann Finch. She's a grandmother and full-time real estate broker who drives six hours each way from Austin to volunteer across the border. She says these migrants could sometimes wait for months, living in one of Mexico's most dangerous cities, where gang activity and violent crime are common. But Team Brownsville co-founder Sergio Cordova says that's exactly what many of them fled in the first place. I see people running from horrible, horrible violence. And they tell me their stories. I've seen people here that have been beaten with machetes, with fingers cut off, with arms cut off. And there's people that are running for their lives. And so I see human beings that are trying to survive. They're trying to enter the U.S. legally under an asylum claim, but their chances are slim. 
The U.S. now requires Central American migrants who pass through another country to seek asylum there first. They can only apply for asylum in the U.S. if they are rejected there. So for most of these migrants, that means more waiting and more roadblocks for an opportunity that's become more out of reach. As we walk over the bridge into Mexico, just beyond the wire mesh fence, we see a still and scenic Rio Grande. Line, and this is where the people swim and drown. And it looks very innocent and very calm, but there's a tremendous undertow. People have died trying to swim across this river. Last month, it was a mother and her 21-month-old toddler. In June, it was a father and his young daughter. And as more people get tired of waiting, there's worry that more of them will be tempted to make the dangerous cross. So this is our breakfast arriving. Fifteen minutes after leaving the bus station, we finally reach a concrete lot filled with tents. There are about 500 people here. About half of them are women and children. The lot is about the size of a third of a football field. And there's not really much here. Two portable bathrooms and a large dumpster in the back. Behind that dumpster is the camp's makeshift shower a sheet strung up as a curtain with a few jugs on the ground that people fill up with water from the river to wash. Water that isn't safe for swimming, bathing, or consuming, especially for children. The hygienic condition of the camp is severely lacking. People are gathering quickly, anticipating the volunteers who park their wagons and set up for breakfast. Anne gives a nervous look. She's already worried about running out of supplies. Everybody's hungry. We run out of food. They know we're going to run out of food. So they get pretty desperate. So we try to have three lines, which is impossible. We try to have children, women, and men. And we try to feed children first, women first, and men. But it doesn't work all the time. The volunteers serve each person a small plate of black beans, tortillas, eggs, and most importantly, a bottle of water. It's before 10 in the morning, and many are already exhausted from the 90-some-degree heat. Nearby, in the shadow of a small building, 31-year-old Angel and 21-year-old Marina and her 4-year-old son Luis take refuge from the glaring sun. Because there's no structural shelter at the camp, its residents are constantly exposed to the elements. We're basically living out in the open. We're dealing with the heat. We're dealing with the dust in the air. Everyone's feet are damaged, and our skin is sunburned. Ángel, who'll just go by his first name because of safety concerns, knows what it's like to live on the road. He spent six months traveling from Honduras. He'd been living in the camp for almost three weeks and left behind his wife and five sons after constant threats from gangs. He said they would even show up at his job, forcing him to stay home for fear of violence. He knew he had to leave. I was forced to flee. Leaving behind my children is one of the things that has pained me the most. It's hurt me terribly. I pray to God that he gives me the wisdom and intelligence to continue on. Marina and Luis also came from Honduras. She and her son, who lives with a single kidney, have been traveling on their own for three months. 
Marina made the dangerous journey north in hopes of having a specialist examine Luis. I want him to tell me that my son is all right and won't need another operation and maybe just needs medication because the doctor in Honduras told me that if he's not treated correctly, he may need dialysis, and that's what I don't want. There's no consistent medical care available at the camp. Sometimes volunteers text pictures of rashes or other symptoms to a volunteer doctor who lives hours away in case he can suggest a specific medication. In the three days Marina's been in Matamoros, she's noticed just how essential the volunteers are to her and the others. Truthfully, they help us a lot. I've only been here three days, but I can see how much they help. They're giving us personal hygiene items and food, and water. It's good. There's a grim reality here, of people forgotten by policymakers on both sides of the border. Without these volunteers, the asylum seekers would be left without food, medicine, clean water, even restrooms. The group raises money through donations, but it's tough. They're not a huge operation, and it costs almost $7,000 per month just to buy water. On this day, the bottled water has already run out. Team Brownsville works with a group of Matamoros churches to bring water to the camp every day. Pastor Aron Garcia tells Mike the need is becoming more and more difficult to fulfill. The heat is getting worse, but the volunteers won't be back with more water until dinner time. Mike is crossing twice a week now instead of 14, thanks to the growing number of volunteers who've stepped up from all over the country. Volunteers like Elisa O'Callaghan, who lives more than 500 miles away near Dallas, and who brought handmade pillow-shaped dolls that she and her friends make to give to the children at the camp. She calls the dolls Calm. So they're called Calm, but it spells creating a loving memory. Because one day when they're old, older, if they still keep something from their past, they're going, somebody who loved me and never met me made me this doll. The children excitedly crowd around her. The only thing that was going through my head was, I don't have enough. We didn't make enough. And I thought I had too many, and we didn't make enough. There's so many kids here now. It broke my heart. On our final trip across the border, we watch as one of the volunteers, Father Bruce Neely, a priest from Austin, sets up a small table as an altar to lead a Sunday night Catholic mass. As the sun sets, Father Bruce brings out his guitar. People join him in song and prayer. Mike Benavides also has a prayer. My prayer, I say, as I'm crossing the bridge, I pray to God, I go, please, I want to arrive and see no one there. I want to arrive and see that they let them in. They've all crossed. They're in America. They're, they're being processed. They're headed home. A home that's safe and secure, where they're treated with dignity, not just by a group of volunteers, but by everyone. Mike knows without changes in policy, prayer isn't enough. Still, he says he has to keep faith to continue on. 
We'll be back with more Kind World after the break. Welcome back to Kind World. I'm Yasmin Amr. And I'm Andrea Aswahe. Before the break, we shared the story of Team Brownsville. It all started with five educators in the summer of 2018. They saw humanitarian crisis across the border and felt they had to do something to help. Now the group is serving almost 1,400 meals a day. And they're giving people without shelter, tents, tarps, blankets, whatever they can. Yeah, they really feel the sense of responsibility as citizens and as neighbors. On our second day reporting, we crossed the border with Sergio Cordova and Andrea Rudnick, who were leading teams of volunteers over to the Matamoros encampment for dinner. And I just have to say, this is hard work. Coordinating everything, buying supplies, then physically pulling those supplies across the border. We wanted to know why doing this is so important to them. Here's Sergio. It's important because I know the majority of the people do not have any money. They've sold their homes, their animals, their, they've sold everything to come here. So by the time they get here, they don't have a penny in their pocket. And so if we don't provide the meal, they would go hungry. Sergio is 52 years old. He's a full-time educator for the Brownsville Independent School District. So crossing the border to bring food and other supplies is what he does during weekends and evenings after work. When I saw that need, I was like, okay, I think this is my calling right here. This is what I need to do. Did you ever expect to be doing something like this? Uh, Five years ago, no, never. But now, I can't see my life without it. You get to an age where you say, what have I done in my life? You know, what difference did I make? I might die tomorrow, and what are people going to, you know? For yourself, not really, I don't care what people say, but for yourself that you say, what purpose did I have? I had a job, I paid my home, I paid my car, and and then what? And then what? What good did you do for humanity? Andrea Rudnick echoes the same sense of responsibility, the same pull that Sergio and the other volunteers feel every time they cross. She's a retired teacher who crosses the border at least two or three times a week. I live less than half a mile away from this plaza. So I consider these people to be my people, too, just like my school kids. There's people that are hardworking, people that that just, that have suffered incredibly in their own countries and that want to make a better life, and I don't see anything wrong with that. Amazingly, Team Brownsville has grown beyond just the city of Brownsville, thanks to word of mouth and social media. You heard from Ann Finch, the 72-year-old grandmother in the story who drives six hours each way from Austin to volunteer. And Anne and her late husband used to come to the border often when they were newlyweds. She remembers taking trips to go on vacation or to go Christmas shopping in Mexico. And now she comes to the border for very different reasons. What compels me to do this is my grandchildren. I have eight-year-old twin grandsons. And when they started with the separation of the children, who could wrap their head around that? Separation of the children from their families. And that's why I came that very first time, was really, I got to go see this. And so people talk about when they're across the bridge, they see Jesus in the face of these children. I don't. I see my grandsons. And what if 
they were separated from their parents or what if they were living in a country that was too dangerous and their parents decided to, to have to leave and they were stuck on that bridge. So all you could do was hope that some little old grandma would come along and bring them popsicles and breakfast pastries and a toothbrush once in a while. So I, do, I really do do it for my grandchildren. I don't want them to grow up in a world where we treat people like this. This is not who we are. We've heard this from a few of the volunteers. This is not just about providing immediate help. They believe it's really important to show the asylum seekers, who feel like they've been forgotten by the rest of the world, that people still care about them. That in itself is extremely important. If you're interested in learning more about Team Brownsville and the type of work they do, go to our website, wbur.org slash kindworld for a link. Next week, we'll be back with a new episode of Kind World about one woman's mission to create a school for the children at the camp. So the idea came when the children stopped leaving. They sit out here, there's nothing to do. So the idea of school, especially with kids that you're going to see over a long period of time, just made sense. Kind World is a production of WBUR, Boston's NPR station. Paul Vikas and Matt Reed do our sound design. Special thanks to Kyrie Thompson and Christella Guerra for helping us with this episode. Additional production assistance from Gabriella Mrazowski. And Iris Adler is our executive producer. I'm reporter and producer Yasmin Amr. And I'm reporter and producer Andrea Aswahe. If you have a story of kindness you want to tell us, email us at kindworld at wbur.org or find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WBUR Kind World. And if you like what we do, then please help us out by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And leave us a review. That will help other listeners find the show. Thanks. We'll see you next week.